Listening to sermons as we go about our days, driving around or doing our work, is a perfect reminder of our Lord's promises and of His mercies. This is the mission of Upper Room Media. To make the Word of God accessible to anybody and everybody. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Happy Thursday, everyone. It's so good to be with you guys. Um, so this is the season in which we are preparing for the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we call this season the season of the nativity or the season of the incarnation. Incarnation means took flesh. So God took flesh in this season, and we are preparing for him, and we are enthusiastic about receiving him, and none of us are going to be like the innkeeper who had no room for him. We are all going to be people that are preparing our hearts in order to receive him and in order for him to make, for us to make a dwelling place for him to be born in our hearts and for us to be able to receive him joyfully. So I wanted us to sort of think about this season and sort of to think, think about how we can be like him. In everything that Christ did, he did it on our behalf for our sake in order for us to do as he would do, right? So everything he did, he modeled for us and he showed us the path in order for us to do as he would do. So what I wanted to do today is to really think about this subject of how can we be like him? How can we become incarnational? So God, the maker of the universe, the one who fashioned the earth, the one who has the whole world into the, in the palm of his hands, the one who makes the sun rise and the sun set, took flesh. The one whom the angels cover their eyes because of his holiness was born as a baby. Like, fathom that for a second. Like, if any of you have ever held a baby, a newborn, what are the adjectives that come to mind when you think about that? Fragile, helpless, dependent. What else? Vulnerable. Think about that for a second. Like, the God of the universe came vulnerably, dependent. The one who breathed the world into existence, spoke the world into motion, humbles himself and comes in the form of a man. And that's why when you look at the early church, they would always call this the Feast of Feasts. Christmas, they would call it the Feast of Feasts. And I want to read just a quick text from St. John Chrysostom. We have a microphone in here. Can somebody read this text so it's not just me talking the whole time? Mariam, you want to read? Oh, not on. Tap it, tap it. A feast is approaching, which is the most solemn and awe-inspiring of all feasts. Pause. The most what? Solemn and awe-inspiring of all feasts. Keep going. 
if one were to call it the metropolis of all feasts, one wouldn't be wrong. What is it? The birth of Christ according to the flesh. In this feast, the Epiphany, Holy Vesca, the Ascension, and Pentecost have their beginning and their purpose. For, for if Christ hadn't been born according to the flesh, he wouldn't have been baptized, which is Epiphany. He wouldn't have been crucified, which is Vesca. He wouldn't have sent the Spirit, which is Pentecost. So from this event, as from some spring, different rivers flow. These feasts of ours are born. So the early church understood that this is the beginning of the work of salvation. This is the beginning of everything. This is the feast that brings forth all other feasts. So that's why Christmas is not about Santa Claus. Christmas is not about us coming and thinking about you know, what gifts we are going to receive. We are receiving the gift of gifts, the greatest of all gifts, because from this day, all the amazing things that Christ would do to work out our salvation manifests. Does that make sense? And I want us to sort of take for a second the hymns that we will say on the night of Christmas and really just break it down for a second. So the hymn of the Nativity Liturgy. We say in the Gospel response, Today, the Virgin begin, gives birth to the Supreme Essence. The Virgin gives birth to the Supreme Essence. And Earth offers the manger to the unapproachable. The angels with the shepherds glorify, and the wise men with the star journey. For to us is born a new child, God before the ages. Like you see the language, the language of, of, the, of these hymns, they seem very dense and they seem very like, whoa, this is big language. But let's break this down for a second. Today, God takes birth, takes form, he takes his humanity from this humble young lady. Not a rich woman, not a powerful woman, not a woman that actually has much prestige or honor. Really, a no-name woman. She gives birth to the supreme essence. She, the offer, the earth offers him what? A manger. The one who's unapproachable. The one whose angels, the angels again, cover their eyes. The earth offers him a manger. The angels with the shepherds glorify. And the wise men with the star journey. For to us, born a new child, God, before the ages. Like, I want us to, like, when we listen to the language of this, don't let it just go over your head. Ask yourself, what am I doing in order to prepare for his coming? What am I doing in order to make space for him? St. Seal of Alexandria says, when you see the child in swaddling clothes, Admonishes, do not let your thoughts stop at his birth according to the flesh, but rise to the contemplation of his divine glory. Rise to the contemplation of his divine glory. Like, stop for a second and think about, wow, God loved me so much that he chose to come in the most humble of humble ways. He chose to take what was mine in order to give me what was his he chose to enter into my brokenness, my wounded human state, in order to elevate humanity to the place of where he is. So I want us 
as we are approaching this feast, to not just, whatever, it's another Christmas. No, in order to celebrate a feast authentically, one must incorporate its saving events into their daily lives. So what does the little baby Jesus mean to me? What does little baby Jesus mean to me? What is his coming? How does it have an impact on me? But let's do this. Let's pause for a second. God chooses specific circumstances to be born into. God doesn't choose wealth. He chooses poverty. He chooses a place where there's no room for him. He chooses to be, like I said, a child vulnerable. He chooses to be wrapped and swaddled. He chooses to be placed in a manger. By the way, what's a manger? Does anyone know what a manger is? We think the, man, the, the manger is like the stable. Huh? It's a feeding trough, exactly. It's the place in which an animal eats out of. So the place where they laid him is where the animals eat out of. The God who holds the world chooses the most empty of places, chooses the most weak of places. And that's why it's really interesting, because Galatians 4 has this specific verse. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. This is the perfect time, Lord. A time in which there's no place. A time in which, you know, your, your, your parents are basically coming to be counted as a census. This is the best time, Lord. Like, when, when you're under Roman occupation. Like, this is the best time. Of course, this is what he says. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. I just, I want us to fathom this for a second. And I know sometimes we read this story and it's just another piece of text. But really process this. There was not even room for him. If this is the fullness of time, there's not even room for him in the fullness of time. There's not like a hotel. There's a feeding trough. St. Cyril of Alexandria says, and I'm going to put a lot of text from the Father's Day because I want us to just understand the language that they use. And I know maybe you may say, Abuna, come on, like speak to us a little bit of like simpler language. But what I'm going to try to do is I want us to try to take the language of the fathers and really understand why they think this is such a big deal. So look what he says. He says, why? Why is this the fullness of time? He found man reduced to the level of the beasts. Therefore, he is placed like fodder in a manger. He sees man living in brokenness, living like animals. So he chooses to be placed like food in the place where animals eat. That we, having left our bestial life, might mount up to that degree of intelligence which befits man's nature. And whereas we were brutish in soul by now approach, approaching the manger, even his own table we find no longer fodder, but the bread from heaven which is the body of life. He speaks about the Eucharist here. Process this for a second. He's born in a manger, in a place where he's to be, where animals eat. And now, in the contemporary, he humbles himself to the form of bread. Right? 
He humbles himself to the porn, to the form of bread. He humbles himself. Every time I hold the Eucharist, I think to myself, wow, Lord, this little thing that was fashioned with our hands, you choose to enter into. You take the form of bread. This is nothing new for you. You chose to be food in a manger. You chose to be humbled in the most lowly of places. So what is Orthodox incarnational theology? Like what is the mind of the Orthodox Church in terms of like this understanding of why God took flesh? I want, to re- I want us to read this quote. In Orthodoxy, we experience God not only as a judge, but in, as referred to in Orthodox services, God the lover of mankind. Orthodox incarnational theology which is at the core of the original gospel, teaches that God himself, the second person of the Trinity, became incarnate, not in order to pay a debt to the devil or to God the Father, not to be a substitutionary offering to appease a just God, but in order to rescue us from our fallen condition and to transform us, enabling us to become like him. So he enters into our fallen nature he enters into our brokenness in order to elevate us and to take us back to him so that's why we love this verse so much in john three sixteen. that's why this is the famous verse of verse that everybody has memorized from the time the two years old for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life for god did not send his his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The, the, the mind of God in him coming and taking flesh is the mind of a physician trying to heal sick people. And when you look at the, the, the history of humanity, time and time again, man messes up, time and time again, God visits them. Time and time and time again, man does dumb things. God sends a messenger, and it's not enough. So ultimately, he chooses to come enter into our brokenness, to heal us, to restore us, in order to bring us to where we ought to be, which is with him. It's an act of love, an act of healing, an act of restoration. And I think oftentimes, we sort of take this, again, superficially. So being saved means more than being saved from something, such as death or hell. It also means being healed or made whole. Oftentimes we dilute the incarnation into being saved from sin and death. But it means he entered into our humanity in order to heal us and to give us the capacity to be whole. Now you may say, how, Buna? What are you talking about? Like, Where are you going here? To be healed, we don't go to a lawyer or to a judge. To be healed, we go to a physician. That's why we, all, we always call the Eucharist the medicine for immortality. The salvation of our souls, our bodies, and our spirits, right? The Eucharist is the healing, right? So we don't go to a physician. We don't go to a lawyer or a judge to be healed. We go to a physician. And Jesus is the great physician. In fact, the Greek word translated as salvation is sotir. We say that sotires, which the root meaning of salvation is health. So what is salvation? What's the, what's the source of him coming? Is to heal us, 
to restore us, to take us back to where we rightly, rightfully should have been with Him. So the whole thought process of God, anyone who's in healthcare knows that like, you're not angry with a sick person. You're not mad at a sick person. You have compassion on a sick person. You want to visit a sick person, a person that has medicine that is available to heal people who are ill. You want people to receive that medicine. Like when we had the vaccine, we wanted everyone in, that was all over the world to be able to receive this vaccine because we thought that it could be a means of protecting people. Take that as the lens of why God comes and chooses to take flesh. Because he sees us sick. He sees us broken. He sees us wounded. It's not just about the sin and the death. Right? The sin and the death is the, the theological reason. right? But the sickness of humanity is the real practical reason. I'm going to get into it in a second in terms of how it actually sort of manifests in our lives. But the motivation of God is always love. Like, and I want you guys to like, keep, make that concrete in your hearts. The motivation of God is always love. The incarnation is an act of God's loving kindness towards humanity. Many of the fathers of the church, looking at the incarnation from this point of view, have argued that even if man had never fallen, God in his love for humanity would still have become man. The incarnation must be seen as part of the eternal purpose of God and not simply as an answer to the fall. Controversial. Controversial. Right? You may say, whoa, 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 whoa. How does that even make sense? It makes sense because in the lens of God, the incarnation is to be close. The incarnation is to heal. The incarnation is to demonstrate love. The incarnation is to restore. The incarnation is to take us from death and bring us into life. So when you think about this concept in like a, whoa, you mean, Lord, if we had never fallen, you still would have wanted to be like us? You would have still came and taken flesh? Now that's... This is what we call theological opinion. People who are streaming this may say, Abuna, you're speaking heresy. Like, no, this is, we know that this is not, this is like a what if situation. So we really don't know what if. We know what is, and what is that humans fell and God chose to enter into our brokenness to heal us. It was an act of his love, it was an act of his mercy, an act of his compassion, an act of the physician coming to take us from our sickness and to bring us into health. So what does the Incarnation do for us? Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. The Incarnation should make us like Him. The Incarnation should make us like Him. Look what He says here. Let us astound them, the pagans, like let us astound those who don't believe in God, the pagans, by our way of life rather than by our words. Let's not be chatterboxes. Let's not be people that just talk the talk but don't walk the walk. Let's be like him in our life rather than our words. For this is the main battle. This is the unanswerable argument, the argument from conduct. For though we give 10,000 precepts of philosophy in words, 
If we do not exhibit a life better than theirs, the gain is nothing. That's a gangster quote, by the way. Like, I want you guys to process that for a second. Let us astound non-believers by our way of life rather than our words. Let us astound humanity by being like him, by humbling ourselves, by serving people, by loving them, by being compassionate, by not putting ourselves on these high pedestals and thinking of ourselves as better than the other, but by going to the lowest place to serve one another. Now you may ask yourself, well, what does that mean? Think about our relationships these days. Think about the pride, the division, the anger. Think about how we deal with each other in our workplaces. Are we coming from a place of the top? Are we coming from the lowest place? He took, the God of the universe took the lowest place to heal humanity. Now what are his followers supposed to do? Are they supposed to come from the top and assert themselves on people through their words? Or are they supposed to love the world in such a radical way that people are flabbergasted? Like that's the best word, flabbergasted. Isn't that such a great word? They're flabbergasted by the love that we live with. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you were radically generous to somebody in your life? Irrationally generous. Like someone, someone was going through a hard time and you knew that you were living in excess and you had an opportunity to just be like, you know what? I'm going to bless this person. Like I'm going to do something that is so radically generous that doesn't even really make sense. When was the last time you were in an argument and you knew that you were right in that argument and you chose to say, you know what? I'm sorry. No, 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 no. They were wrong. They were wrong. No, you chose to take the, the, the lowest place and apologize even when you were wrong. You were right. When was the last time there was a situation in which there was someone or something that was in your way of getting ahead. And you chose to cut that person off or you chose to do everything that you possibly could to make sure that that person gets shoved out of the way to get yourself to where you ought to be. My question is, if there was an alien that landed on this planet, this little 11911, this compound, this alien ship, and they couldn't understand the language that we speak with. Would they be able to believe in our God from the way that we live? Like if somebody landed here and could not speak us speaking about this beautiful like language of God, would they be able to see that we love Jesus through the way that we live? So what does the incarnation do? It should make us more like him. We should be thinking about the little baby Jesus during this whole entire season and be thinking about how much he sacrificed for our sakes and how we ought to be like him and sacrifice for the sake of others. This is a season that actually a lot of us become very selfish. Well, I'm not going to buy them a Christmas gift if they're not going to buy me one. Well, I'm not going to do this. Let me think. How much is this white elephant? It's supposed to be $10. Well, I'm going to make it 9 because I know those cheap Egyptians, they're not going to give me something like $10. Like, we are always calculating, always trying to make sure that everything is equal. Imagine God did that with us. Like, imagine he was like, you know what? I want to make sure it's equal. With what humans did, I'm going to do exactly as they did. There would be no salvation. 
There'd be no restoration. There would be no healing. The followers of the way. Who are the people that are following the way? Because he calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. Now, since from the good master, we have come to share in the greatest, most divine, and first of the names who asked to be named Christians, having been honored with the title of Christ, it would be necessary for all the interpretations of such a word to be seen also in us. Since the title should be not be falsely given to us as a name, but should be a testimony based on our life. What are the biggest things that people criticize Christians for? Y'all Christians are hypocrites. Y'all say one thing, but you live very differently. You Christians talk with your lips, but your hearts are so far from God. You guys are, I don't want anything to do with this community of Christians. I was sitting with somebody today. She was telling me, she's like, so much anger and hatred comes out of Christians. I said, well, it comes from non-Christians too, to be honest. I mean, it comes from people that have no faith at all. There's a lot of anger. It's the human condition. But how much more those who say that they've been saved and healed and transformed by Christ, how much more should the way that we live manifest Him? The standard of Christianity is imitation of Christ in the measure of His incarnation according to the duty of each person's calling. Each of us are called in different ways, right? Like the way that I emulate Christ is going to be very different than the way Mario imitates Christ. Very different way than Melanie imitates Christ, right? Because all of us have our own gifts and talents and our uniqueness, right? All of us have a certain sort of formation and background in which those things shape us. But all of us are to do it according to the duty of each person's calling. St. Basil says, A Christian, St. John Climacus, is an imitator of Christ in thought, in word and in deed, as far as this is humanly possible. As far as this is humanly possible. So let's take some of the things that Christ did in this season, and I want us to sort of take, I call three things that Christ did. He self-emptied, he self-denied, and he self-forgot. The incarnation, and he did three things in the incarnation. He self-emptied, he self-denied, and he self-forgot. I want to talk about that for a second, practically. The self-emptying of Christ. We take this from Philippians chapter 2, where he says, Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. It's not like a robbery for him to say that he is God, like he was God in all things, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He emptied himself, like actually the taking the form of a bondservant, the word in Greek is called kinosis. He emptied himself. He emptied himself. He had he 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 basically left what was rightfully his, the dignity, the honor, the respect, the veneration of the angels. He emptied himself, taking the form of of a bondservant. Kenosis, self-emptying of one's own will and becoming entirely receptive to God's divine will. That's what kenosis means. How many of us in this season are really willing to be receptive to what God's will is? 
in your life, in your circumstances, in the things that are bothering you these days, in the things that you sort of have question marks on? Are you willing to empty yourself of your own desires and align yourself to the heart of God? Maybe there's a situation that I'm in that like really, I know that the situation ain't right. I know that maybe I'm making some bad decisions. I know that maybe the things that I'm doing are really not aligned with God. And I got to empty myself from the things that I really, really want, the strongholds that hold me in order for me to be fully receptive to what God wants. I think self-emptying is the hardest thing in the world. It's the hardest thing in the world. I'm not saying this like, ooh, theor- like Abuna, thank you so much. What, a, what a, a beautiful, profound, philosophical statement. Tell me practically how I do it. Think about today. Let's take this for a second. Let's, everybody take 15 seconds. Let's go 30. And think about your day today. Think about the decisions that you made. Think about the conversations that you had. Think about the way that you thought about other people. Think about the ways that you looked at others. Think about the ways that you judged. Is there a part of every single one of us that there's a ton of space within us to empty? God, I want none of that. I want less of me and more of you. I want less of my desires and more of your desires. I want less of the things that I want, and more of what you want, Lord? Or is it, I want what I want, and Lord, you're the cherry on top. I want the Sunday, and you're just the sprinkles. Like, it's the reality. I think God is like the cherry on top that we add into our decisions. But let's be real. If we were to actually think about every decision that we made today, I think we make some decisions a little bit differently if we were to remove ourselves from the equation and think about what Christ would do in that situation. The wonder fills me with astonishment. I see God before the ages as a child. He rests in the manger. He whose throne is heaven. Human hands hold him who is unapproachable and bodiless. He is wrapped in swaddling clothes. He who breaks apart the bonds of sin. However, this is his will to transform dishonor into honor, to array worthlessness into glory, to recreate assault into virtue. He took my body. He offers me his spirit. He grants me the treasure of eternal life, taking but also giving me. He takes my flesh to sanctify me. He gives me his spirit to save me. So our response to self-emptying should be this. Indeed, here lies the body of the Lord, not wrapped in swaddling clothes as formerly, but attired completely with the Holy Spirit. Those who are initiated know what I'm saying. The Magi merely worshipped him, whereas you, if you approach to communicate with a clear conscience, We permit to consume him and to go back home. You get to consume him and go back home. The Magi got to just look at him. The shepherds got to just visit him. You get him to dwell in you. 
Like, you know why for us, we see the Eucharist as such a big deal? Because it's, it's radical. Like, it's actually crazy. Like, God, you want to live in me? Well, it's nothing new for him. Where is his birthplace? In a dirty, broken place. So it's not shocking for him to say, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm happy to dwell in a broken place. And I'm happy to take that broken place and to make it something great. We love mangers now. Every single one of us, I have a little manger scene in front of my house. It's like a, we love crosses now, right? We tattoo them on our wrists, we wear them on our neck, we fashion them. It's, he takes the shame and turns it into glory. So our response needs to be, if you approach to communicate with a clear conscience, we permit to consume him and go back home. Approach then, bringing gifts. Not gifts like the Magi brought, but ones that are much more solemn. They brought gold, you must bring temperance and virtue. They brought incense, you must bring pure prayers, which are spiritual incense. They brought myrrh, you must bring humility and a humble heart and love. Second thing that he did was self-denying. Love equals sacrifice. Self-denying ourselves leads us to an outward look to others. Right? When you deny yourself, what do you do? You look at the needs of others. When you, like, when you look at how the church often tells us to fast, they say fasting, prayer, and what's the third thing? Almsgiving. Right? Like, it's not enough for you to be a vegan without prayer. It's not enough for you to be a vegan because the hipsters in Brooklyn are vegan. Right? Like, we say this all the time. Like, there's plenty of great vegan restaurants out there. Like, anyone can change their diet to veganism. It's trendy. It's on trend. It's not enough for us to just replace our diet. It needs to be filled with an intense desire to be in loving union with God. And the loving union with God makes me have his heart. And his heart is for the other. His heart is for the weak. His heart is for the broken. His heart is for those who don't have anything. So self-denying ourselves when we're fasting in this season makes us look outward rather than inward. It makes us look at the needs of others. Because he denied himself. He denied what was rightfully fitting to him, which is worship, dignity, glory, honor. Because he was looking at you. He was looking at me. He wasn't looking at what was rightfully his because he had his eyes set on you. So we pray, in our liturgy even, what do we say? We pray for the salvation of the world and for this city of ours and of all cities, districts, islands, and monasteries, right? That's the litany that we pray. Like when you pray that prayer, it's not like, you know, sometimes we're just like, pray for the city of ours and I hate when the deacons do that. Like we, it's, it's a beg, it's an earnest call to the congregation to pray for the salvation of the world and for this city of ours, for Fairfax, Virginia, for all the neighboring communities that, Lord, we want this place to be saved. And if we have that heart where we want this place to be saved, that happens from a less of a look on my needs and more of a look on the needs of others. But no, 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 Abuna. No. What about my needs? What about what I want? What about the things that satisfy me? What about the things that make me feel happy? Each becomes a real person only through entering into relations with other persons, through living for them and in them. 
You can only be a real human by living for others. Now, actually, when you look at the longest study on human happiness by Harvard, you know the, what they say? Like the, the, This is the longest study. You know what they, the conclusion is? Is that those who have deep and meaningful relationships are those that live the happiest lives. Those that live for others. Those that serve others. The three things that they say is they say deep and meaningful relationships, they say service, and they say gratitude. Those are the three things that lead to a happy life. If I have deep and meaningful relationships, I serve others. I serve them. And from serving them, it gives me a great sense of gratitude of what I have and how much God has done for me and manifests into a happy, more content life. But the, the mindset has to be like Jesus, that I self-forget, I self-empty, I self-deny, and I self-forget. I'm almost done here. Finally, self-forgetting. Whoever would save his life would lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. This is a controversial quote that was very famous by Pope Crillus. He loved St. Isaac the Syrian. He would always quote this quote. He says, Endeavor to be despised, and you will be filled with the honor of God. Honor flees away from before the man that runs after it, but he who flees from it, the same will hound down and will become to all men a herald of his humility. It's saying, let me summarize this quote if it's too dense. Saying if you're chasing after honor, good luck. Good luck. Because that honor that you're seeking after, that glory that you're seeking after, will flee. You may get it temporarily. People may clap for you today, but they'll spit on you tomorrow. People may, hey, you're awesome today. But if you're chasing after the opinions of others, it's going to flee after you fast, flee away from you fast. But those who are humble, those who run away from honor, those who choose to take the lowest place, those who choose to forget themselves and put themselves and not forget themselves in the self-deprecating way. I'm not saying like don't think about your like your like being a healthy human. I'm saying self-forgetting in terms of putting the interests of others before your own. I'm saying self-forgetting and serving others before thinking about what your needs are. Self-forgetting in the idea of taking the lowest place, losing your life for the sake of the gospel in order to truly find yourself. So I'll finish off with this final big, big thing. This is a poem by St. Isaac the Syrian called The Nativity Night. He says, This Christmas night, Christ bestowed peace on the whole world, so let no one threaten. This is the night of the most gentle one, let no one be cruel. This is the night of the humble one, let no one be proud. Now is the day of joy, let us not revenge. Now is the day of goodwill, let us not be mean. In this day of peace, let us not be conquered by anger. Today, the bountiful impoverished himself for our sake. So rich one, invite the poor to your table. Today, we receive a gift for which we did not ask. So let us give alms to those who implore and beg us. This present day casts open 
the heavenly doors to our prayers. Let us open our door for those who ask for forgiveness. Today, the divine being took upon himself the seal of our humanity in order for humanity to be decorated by the seal of divinity. This is the mindset of this whole season. Opposites. Whatever you think, like all the, the, the vices that we have, ought to be replaced with virtue. All, all the way, our natural inclination to do harm ought to be replaced with the mind of Christ, which is to only bestow blessing, only to heal, only to restore. If we think about even the premise of the incarnation is to go out, for him to go out and to be a physician for all those who are broken. And if we're followers of the way, aren't we supposed to be physicians to a broken world? Aren't we supposed to be healers to those who are in need of healing? Now you may ask yourself, well, Abuna, beautiful in theory. Beautiful in theory. But give me some things to practically do. I'll tell you first thing, practically. It ain't going to happen on your own. Let's just be real. Like if you, if, if you walk out of this room and you're like, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to be like Jesus. I'm go if you try to do it on your own, good luck. It's not going to happen. The only way to do it is his grace is sufficient and his strength is made perfect in weakness. So when you admit you are weak, that's when he can enter into that weakness and help you be able to fulfill the things that he's desiring for you to do. So it starts with an initial step of saying, Lord, I need you, I desire you, I want you. And practically, let's just be real. People will say, God, I want to hear God's voice. And my first thing that I'll ask them, do you read your Bible? So come on, Abuna, like, give me something else. Give me something else. Like, I know, read my Bible and pray. Like, okay. Like, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, whom my, the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring you to repentant, bring you to remembrance of the things which I have spoken to you. The Holy Spirit brings you to remembrance of the things which Christ has spoken to us. But if you don't read, the Holy Spirit can't remind you. If you don't know his teachings, the Holy Spirit can't encourage you. So if we, if we don't have a relationship with the Bible, the Word himself, if we don't read on a regular basis, how can we exchange our brokenness for his life? How can he take our vice and turn it into virtue? And I'm being real right now. Like, I know you're going to say, oh, another. But like, really, is it so hard to take one chapter from the Bible every single day and to find one verse from that chapter and try to live that verse every single day? Like, is it really that hard? Is our life so busy that we can't exchange 15 minutes from TikTok or Instagram or what, or, or, or Facebook or whatever? What's the snap? I'm trying to find every other social media platform. Like, is it, can't give 15 minutes? But we love to reshare other spiritual things on our Instagrams. Like, oh, let me share, like, let me repost something that somebody else said. What about what Jesus spoke to you personally? Like, okay, I love to share what other people said. But what about what he wants to speak to you? What about what he wants to whisper in your ear and tell you about your own struggles? It's not going to happen if we're not reading the word of God. It's not going to happen if we, have a, we don't have a commitment to Self-evaluation. One thing 
that I, I, I promise you I really try to do every night if I don't just like lay down and just knock out right away. One thing that I really try to do is I try to do a replay of my day. What thing did I say today that was stupid? Did I offend anyone? Did I maybe misspeak? Did I maybe not consider someone who is in need? Did I maybe ignore somebody that needed, needed like, did I think of somebody and reject that spirit stirring telling me to reach out to that person because I didn't want to add another appointment to my plate? Just being real. Like, an instant replay of the day. In a season of fasting, there ought to be an instant replay, an instant, a daily replay. I, need to, I ought to be looking at my day and ought to be thinking to myself, Lord, I want to be incarnational. I want to be like you. But I can't do that if I'm not aware of where my shortcomings of today are in order for the grace of God to work with me to make those shortcomings of yesterday different tomorrow. So evaluate yourself. And remember, the Holy Spirit's work is always to encourage. If after you do that replay, you're like, oh, I'm the worst of the worst. I'm such a terrible human. That's not from God. God is like, man, you messed up. You could be better today, tomorrow. God will never discourage you. He will always say, I'm glad that you are aware of that. I want to encourage you that you can be in me better than you were t yesterday. And finally, I tell people during seasons of fasting, add a second liturgy to your week. Add a second liturgy to your week. If you can pray a weekday liturgy where you can come to a 5 to 7 or an 8 to 10, I'm telling you there is a mystical power in the Eucharist. He humbles himself and exchanges himself into, a, into wheat, into bread. Those three things I'll tell you that if you really, really, really evaluate yourself during this season, naturally the byproduct of those three things is to go out and to serve others. Like, like it's, it's not like I don't need to tell you. And part four, go out and serve others. Like The natural thing is if I'm reading my Bible, if I'm evaluating, if I'm receiving Christ in the Eucharist, then the natural thing is I go in peace. Go in peace. Like, I walk out in the peace which I receive with him, which gives peace to every single person that I encounter. Does that make sense? Questions, comments, criticisms? Feedback? Glory be to God for every man. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart and we pray that it will not only inform you but will also transform you and your life with Christ.